Welcome to Record Club. This is Record Club, the podcast where people tell personal stories about how seminal albums impacted their lives. My name is Louise Burns. I'm a musician, producer, and your host. And on the show, you're going to hear stories in front of audiences from our record club nights. Yes, this show was recorded in a time before COVID-19, where we could still gather and socialize in groups. Remember how nice that was? Anyway, at these musical gatherings, we pick one classic album and invite regular people to share their stories of how that album or themes from that album intersected with their lives. This is a story about control. This week on Record Club, we're telling stories inspired by the pop icon and innovator, Janet Jackson. After two albums that barely scraped the radio charts, it was her third one that really broke through. On this record, Janet fought for artistic self-actualization, making the bold decision to free herself from her controlling showbiz family. Miss Jackson's Independence delivered a deeply personal album. It was a celebration of self-determination and feminism that propelled her out from under the massive shadow of her older brother Michael, a nearly impossible feat that her eight other siblings failed to achieve. This record was a declaration of her assertiveness as a visionary artist. Your album this week is Janet Jackson's Control. They were like, hey, you want to do this record club? I'm like, okay, which record is it? And they're like, Janet Jackson Control. I'm like, yes, honey, I'm there. I will absolutely own up to the fact that I'm a nasty woman. Thank you. In 1986, Nasty was the second single off Control that secured Janet's new self-assured identity. It presented a young woman who was confident in her own sexuality and wasn't afraid to push back against misogyny. This is all punctuated by her iconic lyric, No, my first name ain't Baby. In one line backed by a powerful industrial beat from legendary producers Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, Janet shed her bubblegum pop sex appeal. Exactly 30 years later, the term nasty woman had never been so relevant when Donald Trump weaponized it against Hillary Clinton in the 2016 presidential debate. This song became an anthem for the unapologetic women who boldly reclaimed nasty as a rallying cry for the ongoing battle of gender equality. It spurred a movement that still rages on today. When this show was recorded, it was only a few months after the 2017 Women's March. Even though this was a huge moment for women, listening to these live recordings and looking back at that year, it's apparent feminism had some growing up to do, to focus the fight on all kinds of women, an intersectional change that Janet had always been pushing for. Would the stories from this live show be different if we recorded it today, centering on Black, Indigenous, and queer voices? Absolutely. As we evolve, our appreciation of culture widens, and our respect for Janet continues to thrive.
our first storyteller, Susan Colton, supports theater and film performers across Vancouver. Susan took the message of being as quote-unquote nasty as she wanted to be when she lay it all out on the stage at her high school talent show. I'm going to tell you my uh, best high school memory. I did not like high school. I don't trust anyone who says they do like high school. <laughs> so every year, the, my school held a Duke of Earl contest, and it was when the grade 12 boys did like a talent contest. So a couple girlfriends and I got together, and we decided we would dance to Janet Jackson's Nasty Boys. So the day of the um, contest happened... And we were starting to dance, and we were just giving her. We were grinding, we were thrusting, there was things going all over the place. And I looked over and uh, looked at my principal's face, and he was seriously wishing he had vetted this dance before we were dancing. So I look up into the bleachers, and I can see my two girlfriends are in the front, and they're dancing, they're getting it, they're grooving too. Awesome. And then I look a little further up and I see my secret crush, Steve Paragunoff. <laughs> so hot, so hot. You know, when you look at somebody and you're like, I want to climb you. <laughs> so hot. Not, not my boyfriend at the time. So where is my boyfriend? Well, I look over in the bleachers and I can see him. And he was like a, a jockey kind of guy. And he's surrounded by all his friends. And um, the friends are smiling. And they're like, yeah, Janet. <laughs> he is not smiling. He looks so uncomfortable. He looks in pain. And his eyes keep kind of shifting over to the left. I'm like, what the fuck is he looking at? I'm, like, I'm right here. <laughs> Hips are for you. <laughs> So he's looking, looking, and I kind of swing over, and I look, and I, I see my sister there, who doesn't go to high school. And I'm like, oh. And then I look further along, and there's my other sister. And she's six, and she's got, like, her hair over one eye, so she looks like a little teeny tiny cyclops. And she's like, what are you doing? And then I look over further, and there's my brother. It's like the whole family's here. And he's like, he loved it. He was like, this is awesome. So I look over again, and I can see my mom is there. And uh, I kind of look up her whole body, because I'm like, oh, shit, oh, shit. And I look, and there's no expression on her face. And I look away. And then I look at her again, and nope, there's no expression on her face. And the song ends. And, you know, we bow, and then we run out to the smoke pit, and I smoke, like, six cigarettes. <laughs> and I go back in, and when I go back in, my mom and my brothers and sisters are not there. So... We watch the, the end of the contest. That's fine. We get dismissed, and I go to my locker, and I'm packing up. Everyone's like, oh, my God, oh, my God, you were so good. You were so good. And I'm like, yeah, okay, thanks. I'm thinking, holy shit, I have to go home right away. And then my boyfriend comes running up, and he goes, oh, my God, your mom was there. And I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, I know, I know. So we lived on a farm. So we drive there, and then we're going down this really long driveway, and it's all gravelly, and you can hear everything popping. I'm kind of starting to get a little pissed off, because I'm thinking, you know, I just danced to a song. It's all about respect, and, you know, and it's all about Janet and control, and she, like, takes hold of her whole life. And I'm getting mad. I'm going up the stairs. I'm thinking, fuck this shit. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to rage at her. I'm so mad right now. I'll go in, go in through the mudroom, kick off my shoes, 
go into the kitchen and she's standing at the kitchen. She must have just done the milking because we've got the pails of milk there. She's stirring at the stove. There's onions cooking. And I turn around and look at her. I'm just ready to pounce on her. And she says, you were good. <laughs> and I go, what? <laughs> she goes, you were good. And then she hugs me and she's so soft. And I can see the bubbles on the milk and the sun's coming in and it is the best best memory that I have at high school. Thank you very much. The idea for the show and Record Club Storytelling Nights came from Ken Soy and Lizzie Carp. They're the ones who find the storytellers and pick the albums. I wanted to chat with them about why they chose Janet Jackson's Control and what the album means to them. But we couldn't be all in the studio together, so I called the old-fashioned way on a landline. Hey guys, how's it going? Hi Louise. Hey Louise. So before we get into it, I just want to know a little bit of background about the storytelling nights. Obviously, I've been at them, but for those who are listening who have not been before, kind of like, you know, describe what they were like and what they felt like and what went into them. I'd love to answer this question with a really short story. Perfect. Um, Ken and I have been pals and creative partners for a long time, and we were in a car the day that Prince died and listening to a lot of the coverage of his death and immediately all of these stories pouring from fans. And it became really clear that these personal stories were how people across the globe were connecting over this legendary artist's death. And Ken and I, our friendship in the way that we, that ideas come up, uh, music has always been a really big element to that. And with a lot of experience around personal storytelling narratives and experiences, it took no time for us to meld the two and use albums that we loved and that we've lived with and use that to crack open the legacy of that artist and that album through personal stories. So tell me, though, why did you choose Janet Jackson's Control? How could we not choose control? Okay, so we knew that we had to have a Janet album when we were coming up with a list of initial artists because all of the firsts that I experienced culturally had something to do with Janet Jackson. She was the first song I ever heard on the radio. Um, one of my vivid memories of watching like cool older kids lip syncing at a school assembly and mm. wondering how they how they knew every word. <laughs> Real pivotal moment for me. Um, I remember learning that MTV was channel 28, the cable channel. And the very first video I saw was what have you done for me lately? And I thought countless times running every hour. So our next story is loosely inspired by the Janet Jackson song. What have you done for me lately? Ken, why don't you talk to me a little bit about that track? Yeah, it's actually, you know, this might be a hot take, but I think it's one of the most important tracks off the record. It's the first question anyone asks before they wake up and see the BS of any given situation. That's really when the process of gaining control really starts to kick in and really starts to happen. So that's exactly what Janet did in that song. That's so true. And when you really think about her age, too, when she put this record out, having 
the confidence and the strength to ask that kind of question in her music and in her life is actually pretty empowering and inspiring for a lot of other younger women and men who listen to this record. Exactly. And the fact that it was so much easier for her just to live in this bubble of the Jackson family showbiz machine. And in a way, she saved herself. Um, And it's inspiring because no one managed to do it like her. I can't even imagine the weight of having been from the Jackson family, too. And just how do you even assume that you can have a solo career being tied to something so massive, you know? And not have Michael Jackson be associated with it completely totally. and entirely. Yeah, 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 yeah. How, how are you supposed to top the king of pop? Yeah, how do you top Thriller? You put out control. That's right. Yes. Okay, so we're going to get into our next story. Thanks, guys. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. Our next storyteller is Brittany Tiplady. She's a wonderful writer and editor whose work focuses on women's stories, and she bravely shares a very personal story with us. When I was 21, I fled to South America for nine months. One, to explore my lineage, and two, to really feed that millennial wanderlust craving, and three, to escape the control that my parents had over my life and my direction at that time. So I backpacked for three months and slept my way through four different countries before landing in Lima, Peru and setting up camp there. And if anyone knows Lima, it's a really drab, gray, metropolitan, dirty city. And so as soon as I moved in and I set up camp in a home owned by a retired Peruvian soap star and her brother, mostly inhabited by seniors and traveling businessmen. The glamour of travel completely disappeared and suddenly I was lonely and depressed. So the only place that I could really find solace was hanging out on these rocky, dirty, littered coastline city beaches and just roasting. So on one of those days, I was approached by a Justin Guarini doppelganger. (laughs) And he offered me surf lessons. And so naturally, I obliged. And soon, those surf lessons turned into surf lessons. And I was staying at his parents' place for one night a week, and then two nights a week. And then all of a sudden, I had kind of moved in all the while blocking all these language barriers and speaking in mimes and really short sentences. Our love affair grew fast, and I plastered it all over social media. I wanted everyone to know that I was having a fantastic time fucking a really hot guy. And I was starting to be invited to all of the family gatherings and events and milestones and birthdays, and one of those was Mother's Day. And we took a family photo, me at the front, everyone else kind of at the back. And a few weeks later, I saw in Jorge's email inbox that his father had email blasted that photo out to the entire family. And at this point, my Spanish is getting better and I can read and I can really kind of understand what's going on. And the subject line in the email read, Jorge and his new white conquest. When I returned back to Vancouver, we continued the long-distance relationship. I was, if anyone knows me, I am in it for love. If I'm in, I'm in. The blinders go up, and that's it. So I went back to my old life, which was finishing my journalism degree and working as a hostess at the Spaghetti Factory, 
all the while orchestrating and financially supporting this really needy long-distance relationship. And suddenly, my justifications of spending money on him went from airplanes and visiting and gifts to helping his parents pay rent and helping pay for car damages that he caused. And I lost control of my finances. And not just my finances, but my friendships and my education and my direction. And my life became a webcam and every spare moment was spent on my computer on Skype. Once he saw the balance in my savings account, the energy in the relationship shifted. When I visited him, the sex became really forceful and unnatural. I found another pair of women's underwear in his bed. He snuck out one night to gamble, and money from my wallet was missing. And before I knew it, I became that white conquest. I became a human ATM machine. And when people ask me, why, how, how could you do that? One, for love. And two, to spare myself the embarrassment of admitting to everyone that the relationship that I had broadcasted and defended was a lie. The relationship ending was not gradual. It was as if I had woken up from an 18th month long nightmare and the blinders had come off and I had come to. When I left, I took control of my life back. What I did not expect was the residual PTSD and having to explain to friends and family as to where my money had gone and what happened to this relationship that I painted as the perfect international love story. But I will say that I did take control of my life back and I emerged from all of this more successful and more strong than I ever have been. And out of the many, many lessons that I learned from this, the greatest one is, your great love is not supposed to rob you of your dignity. Thank you. Throughout Janet's career, she continued to find control, not just creatively, but in deeper, more personal ways. Whether it was when she dropped her last name from her 1993 album, Janet, period, to make a statement disassociating her public image from the Jackson family. Or when she regained control of herself after an emotional breakdown and bout of crippling depression that inspired her 1997 album, The Velvet Rope, my personal favorite. Janet constantly moves others to do the same through her music. Our last storyteller is Johnny McCurvey. Johnny is a talented-as-hell writer and DJ and knows a little something about being moved by Janet's career, even if she took it literally. Full disclaimer, this isn't connected directly to Control. It's actually inspired by Rhythm Nation 1814. But it's such a great story, we just had to include it. I would like the record to note that uh, without Control's commercial success, Janet would never have been given the creative leeway to make a concept album like Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation 1814. So 
I was in the fifth grade. Lynn Murfield's mom took me and Lynn to the Pacific Coliseum to see Janet Jackson perform on her Rhythm Nation tour. Yes! It was my first real big concert. I experienced for the first time this like transcended ecstasy of like losing yourself and moving to the beat of electronic music. The show was amazing, obviously, right? It was a huge stage, fire and lights, and Janet and a zillion dancers like thundering around in this like post-apocalyptic scaffolding, and like <laughs> it was great. And it was, you know, building and building towards this title performance. I felt like wild inside. I was like, I couldn't contain myself. I felt like I was going to explode. And then Janet started to recite the pledge that is like opens the album where she, you know, she speaks, we are, we are a nation without geographic boundaries. She starts to recite this. I'm like, holy shit, holy shit. And so I have to like excuse myself to Lynn's mom. I'm like, I just have to go over here. And she's like, where are you going? You're like 11. And I was like, I just... I just need to go over here. And I, and I, I got her to let me out along the row to the end of the row where the, like, the stair was, the aisle there. And I just went bananas. Like, <laughs> this, like this, the song is like, you know, it, the, we are a part of the rhythm nation. Like, everyone's like, just like huge. And I'm just like going crazy. Like, I don't know. I don't know what I look like to adults, right? Like, I look like probably like a cartoon character getting electrocuted, but like also like Ed Grimley from Saturday Night Live. Like, I don't know. I was just like, I had no control. But I also like, I felt something else. You know, I felt like a loss of self. I felt like a oneness. I was like one with the music and the other dancers and the other people in the audience. I was like, like this. And I also, I felt so cool. I felt so, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Like, just like, <laughs> I felt so cool until I got tapped on the shoulder and I'm like, what? And this usher is like, you can't be here. You have to go back to your seat. I remember being a bit embarrassed. I remember becoming suddenly aware that I was doing something that other people weren't doing or that like I wasn't allowed to do. So I was like, oh, fuck. And then, but more, I really remember being so frustrated. I was so frustrated that I couldn't have the space I needed to physically express myself. <laughs> I was like in the row and it was like the seat in front was too close and the seat behind me was too close and I was just like <laughs> like so oh. but when I'd been out there in the stairs I'd been so free it's been like a really long time since that night but I've spent a lot of time in my life since then seeking these chances these opportunities to re-experience or recreate that feeling that I had at that Janet Jackson concert. It wasn't just more than a few years in, uh, until I discovered raves. <laughs> yeah, like, it was super free and creative and wild and, like, 
everyone was equal and equally weird and you could like freak out like an 11 year old if you wanted to and nobody would judge you and it was awesome and when I got old enough I started going to nightclubs I would just like dance at the nightclubs until the lights came on and like we'd be like red faced and sweaty in this like sudden bright light and be like no no more please right like just like wanted it to keep going we were so hungry to hungry for more of it and then I got kind of tired of where I was allowed to go to access that feeling it was like you know when you're in your 20s you're like every night you go out you're like we're making new memories (laughs) and then (laughs) and then in your 30s you're like oh yeah I get it (laughs) like I've been here so in like 2013, uh, two friends and I got together and we started throwing our own parties and, and DJing, um, which is, thank you. So we started doing that thing. We called ourselves Can I Live after a Jay-Z song and then, but like also after that feeling of like, can I just be a human in the world that I want to be? All we wanted to do was play music that we love to dance to and create a space, like a judgment-free space for people to celebrate and sweat together. And we did it. Yeah, it was, it's awesome, and it's been like, you know, just over four years now we've been doing it, and uh, I don't know, sometimes I feel a bit old. Like, <laughs> well, you know, I wonder, does Janet Jackson feel old, right? Like, she just, she, well, but she just had a baby. She's launching, yeah, she probably feels pretty fucking tired. She's launching a world tour, and she's 50, right? Like, she's, that's amazing. Like, she is props to Janet Jackson, because she is doing it, and, like, has always been so inspiring, like, you know, to women, and all the ways that she keeps going and keeps reinventing herself and keeps reappearing and resurging and being beautiful and wonderful. And sometimes, though, like, in between adulting and, like napping and making green smoothies like we still throw parties and we still play music that we love and we still dance and like 25 years before can i live put a wiggle in anyone's butt janet jackson also wrote her manifesto it goes we are a nation with no geographic boundaries bound together by our beliefs we are like-minded individuals with a shared vision, pushing towards a world rid of color lines. We are a part of the Rhythm Nation. And that's Record Club for this week. Next week, we hear stories from an album that came out just before the internet took over the world. It was the soundtrack to pre-Y2K anxiety, and it gave voice to just how isolating it could feel to live with the entire universe at your fingertips. Your record next week is Radiohead's OK Computer. uh, This is kind of funny for me because Radiohead isn't my band, and OK Computer is not my album at all. Uh, And this is the story of why.
Record Club is a Kelly and Kelly production. It is produced by Chris Kelly, Max Collins, and Jody Camilleri. Special thanks this week to Megan Lau. Record Club was created and produced by Lizzie Carp and Ken Soy and recorded at a Hear There event in Vancouver. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, spread the word about it, and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Louise Burns. Thanks for listening. Kelly and Kelly. 